Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, you can head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode one in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Thanking God for the Genuine Conversion of the Thessalonians, where we'll discuss 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? What an incredible chapter this is, and this answers some of the deepest, most profound questions about the marks of regeneration, or what does it look like when someone actually is born again, when someone actually receives the gospel and is justified by faith? What kinds of things can we expect to see in that person's life? So we've got the mystical, invisible, spiritual realms, which has to do with election, and he's gonna talk about that in verse four, um, and, and also the spirits working in someone. You can't see any of that. But as Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. When the wind moves, you don't see the wind. You never see the wind, but you see what the wind does. And so we're going to see what the powerful Holy Spirit does in the lives of individuals when they genuinely repent and believe in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All right, well, I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 so that we have a sense of the context for our discussion today. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This epistle is from three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But three times in the letter, Paul speaks in the first person. Mm. So in some ways, the letter was from Paul, yet he uses we 62 times, us 20 times, and our 26 times in the letter. Mm. Why do you think Paul included the other two in the writing of this letter when he could easily have written it himself? Well, I think he wants the Thessalonians to know that they're part of the of a of a family, the family of God, the body of Christ. Uh, he wants to elevate um, Silas, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy. Um, Paul's older than them, and so they're the next generation. And he wants to establish their authority and their ability to speak into the Thessalonian situation going forward. So he, he puts them on the same pedestal as him, but it's pretty clear that the letter's from him. Mm-hmm. So he's including them again and again, um, and, and does it not just once or twice, but, but many times throughout the, the epistle. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, it's really his authority, it's his voice. He's speaking as the apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, as usual, Paul begins uh, this epistle with the greeting, grace to you. Why do you think that greeting is so dear to Paul? And what does it mean? Well, I think we've noted in the past that epistles begin with uh, grace to you, um, and then they end with grace be with you. Mm. So I almost look on it like, I've used this analogy before, like a car wash of grace, where we kind of go into the car wash and we get hosed down and cleansed and buffed up and shining and all that and then we go out with the effect of the car wash still with us and so the epistle has a powerful uh, effect of God's grace and uh, on us, and I think also it feeds the the conception that we've had biblically, the right conception that our salvation is not completed yet. We still have a process to go through. We're in the process of sanctification, and so the, these epistles, the New Testament epistles from Paul, are essential to our ongoing salvation. We need more grace, as it says in Peter, um, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives us more grace. We need more grace. So this epistle, just like all of Paul's epistles, is a a vehicle of God's grace in our lives as we read it. Now, Andy, what's the theological basis for thanking God for other Christians? And how does a life of faithful prayer for them that is constant and sweetened by overflowing thanksgiving keep those relationships healthy? Well, at the end of Romans 11, in this beautiful doxology, he says one of the most powerful things we could ever hear, and it's so vital, uh, concerning God, Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So when we thank God for other people, first of all, we're thanking God for the fact that they just exist. If, they, if it hadn't been for God's will and God's creative purpose, they wouldn't even exist. But then how much more giving thanks to God for them as Christians, as saved by his grace, they would not be born again if it weren't for the sovereign grace of God. And so there's a very strong theological principle when Paul thanks God for the conversion or salvation of others, he's given God the credit and the glory. Mm -hmm. You thank the one who's responsible. So think of it this way, on, a, on Christmas, you're together with your family, extended family, brothers and sisters, parents, your wife, your kids tons of people in the room and you get a gift you look at the tag and you see well who it's to should be clear because it's being handed to you but who is it from and why do you want to know who it's from so you can thank that person mm. so you can thank them and so imagine if you opened up something from your wife and thanked your brother hmm. how would your wife feel uh, that would be a, not a great moment i'm That's thinking right. and your brother would be confused <laughs> because you thank the one responsible. Mm. So Paul is making a theological statement whenever he thanks God for the salvation or for the faith of another. And the clearest example of this, I think, is in Romans 6.17, where Paul says, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Let me keep it real simple. Thank God, concerning the Romans, thank God you obeyed. Mm. So he's giving God credit for the Romans' obedience. obedience. Wow. So here in Thessalonians, he's giving God credit for their justifying faith and the life transformation that's happened in them. In verse 3, what does the fact that Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' work and endurance teach us about the relationship between God's work in us mm -hmm. and our work for God? They're absolutely linked. Um, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which mm. God prepared in advance. Uh, also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, 
uh, very powerfully. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Mm -hmm. And so the, the energetic work we see in Paul's life, and it was overwhelming, came from a power that worked in him by the grace of God. And so here he's thanking God for their work of faith, or as one translation put it, the work produced by faith, their faith in Christ has resulted in work. Mm. Now this also brings us to one of those deep, one of the deepest theological issues of Christianity. We're justified by faith, not by works. We are forgiven of our sins and made in a right standing with God by faith, not by works. But we need to understand whenever that justifying faith comes, it always produces good works. So James makes it very plain that faith apart from works is dead. It's not real faith. And so here there's that strong linking. He says we are constantly remembering before God in our prayers. And by the way, I love that continual praying language. Mm -hmm. Paul was a man of prayer, yeah. just constantly praying and thanking God. He was just walking in the presence of God in prayer mm. constantly. But whenever he thought about the Thessalonians, he thought about how hard they were working for Christ. And he believed that that work came from their faith in Jesus. Now the three couplets in verse three are interesting as well. Mm -hmm. They're work of faith, labor of love, and mm -hmm. steadfastness of hope. Mm -hmm. How would you understand the links between work and faith, labor and love, mm -hmm. and steadfastness and hope? Okay, well, work and labor are, are synonyms, but maybe just a matter of intensity. So there are mm. people that work and then there are those that labor, you mm. know, so it's, it's, it's doubling down on work. So they're synonyms, but uh, a more of intensification. So we've already covered a moment ago, work of faith or work produced by faith. Faith makes you want to be energetic and go do something. You, you want to find some way to serve. You know, Isaiah 6, you know, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send me. I want to do something. And isn't it an incredible grace from God that he gives us eternally consequential works to do? And so faith, the ability to see the invisible spiritual realm, past, present, and future, to look back at all that God has done in creation and redemption and all that and understand that whole history from the Bible, to look around presently and to look up and to see the invisible uh, God, Almighty God, and Jesus at the right hand of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit around the world and you look future to Judgment Day and the world beyond should make you want to work. Mm. Say, Lord, while I have time, while I have a healthy body and, and spiritual gifts, I want to do something for you. So faith produces work and then love produces labor. So I would say, at least simply a synonym. Um, so work comes from both faith and love. But let's say it's an intensive work. You're going to work really, really hard based on love. Mm. The more you love somebody, the more you're willing to sacrifice, the more you're willing to pay a high price for a gift yeah. or lay yourself out late at night working hard to, to bless somebody. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a tremendous link between love and work. You think about the, the story about, about Jacob and how much he loved Rachel and how much he yearned to have her as his wife. And the price was to work seven years for Laban. But it said that the seven years that he, that he worked for her seemed like, seemed like it was nothing, like it was a week mm. uh, because of his love for Rachel. And then Laban swindled him, and that's a whole different other story. <laughs> whole but different <laughs> whole story. different other story. But at any rate, the fact was, you know, when you really love someone, you want to labor for them. Mm. And then the third is, uh, endurance inspired by hope or is that steadfastness steadfastness hope, or yeah. endurance perseverance the fact that you know as jesus said very plainly he who stands firm to the end will be saved 
the fact that after a period of time, you're still a Christian. Mm. And yet more, you're still a Christian. And endurance is a mark of genuine Christianity. And frankly, if you talk about marks of regeneration, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Probably the number one proof is endurance. The fact that after many testings, after many temptations, after many persecutions, you still love Jesus, still believe in him. Mm. That is something that's not true of the rocky uh, soil seed that, that immediately springs up, but is shallow. And as soon as the sun come up, comes up, the plants are scorched and they wither because they have no root because mm. they are those that hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. Yeah. When trouble or persecution comes, they fall away. So Jesus says, he who stands firm or endures to the end will be saved. Well, what, what causes endurance? Hope. And what is hope but a feeling, a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God? So you're like, I'm not going to give up. Jesus is coming back. I'm not going to give up. We're going to win. I'm not going to give up. Every good thing that I, could, I ever do will be rewarded eternally. So hope gives you energy, and that causes you to stand firm through every every testing. Yeah, I love that definition of hope that you've given before as mm. well. Uh, how can we strengthen our hope to become mm. an even more vigorous uh, people in our endurance in the trials we face in the world? Yeah, that's one of the great gifts of the ministry of the Word of God. So I would say saturate yourself in the Bible um, and your hope will increase. You'll have a, a vivid sense of what the future looks like. The Bible is a supernatural book. In that, it speaks about the future. It's prophetic. It tells us things that are coming that are not here yet. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The more that you are in God's word, the more vivid that hope will become. The new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem, judgment day and beyond. The fact that we're going to be in these glorious resurrection bodies, you can just see it. Your hope gets strong and vigorous when you are meditating on immersing yourself in the scripture. I think also it says in, um, in Romans 15, 4, uh, everything that was written in the past was written to instruct us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so scripture feeds hope. So you want to grow in hope, just saturate yourself in the word of God. That's great. And one thing that's helpful for us as we saturate ourselves is, is to meditate on Scripture as well. How is it helpful for us to meditate on the fact that Paul's certain mm -hmm. that God chose the Thessalonians as he plainly asserts in verse 4? Well, meditation is just deep thinking and you start to see some connections. Uh, parenthetically, it's one of the number one benefits and one of the number one reasons I advocate extended memorization of Scripture. Mm -hmm. When you memorize whole books of the Bible, like memorizing 1 Thessalonians, which is, I forget, something like 105 verses is long something like it's not that long uh, maybe less i don't remember but when you memorize a short epistle like this um you know you're going to meditate on it you're going to be chewing it over and just working on the words and and insights are going to come to you one of the insights that came to me when i memorized this book was that this is talking about election and so we'll talk about this in a minute but i think when you meditate on scripture uh, ins insights come and you start to learn some things that you never noticed before. So I would just commend that to you. Whether you memorize or not, you can meditate. And meditate is just a kind of a slow chewing over the words. What is he saying? What does this mean mm -hmm. for me? How do I understand this, etc.? So there's that sense of meditation. Now, according to verse 5, what's the basis of Paul's certainty that the Thessalonians were chosen by God? Mm -hmm. And what does this teach you about good evidence 
of conversion. Right. And we don't see the word election here, but we do see the verb chosen, that God has chosen you. And so now we come to the great mystery of, of election. And we believe that election, scripturally, is taught uh, that election happened before the foundation of the world. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. But the question is, how can I know that someone, a person, is elect? And according to this verse, we can know. We actually can know. Now, we can't know with absolute certainty because of the Judas principle. Mm. Judas looked really, really good to the outside so that none of the apostles knew that he was the one. Mm. So it's, it's actually not all that hard to fool somebody. But all other things being equal, when you see the way someone's living, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. You hear how someone talks you look at their facial expressions, their demeanor in certain situations. You see what they give themselves to. You see what their works are. You can evaluate someone's works and know the nature of the tree. By their fruit, you will know them. This is a consistent biblical teaching. Look at the fruit, you'll know what kind of tree it is. Do people pick grapes from fig trees or, or, or from thistles, etc.? Jesus said, by the, by the nature of the fruit, you know what kind of tree it is. And so it is here. Paul says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How? Because of how the gospel came in your life. What happened when you received the gospel? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. We actually can know, though not perfectly, but we can know that another person is elect. One thing we can never know is that somebody's reprobate. And election and reprobation are the two aspects of predestination, that there are some that are elect. Everyone that's not elect is reprobate. But we cannot know in this world, while someone's alive, that they're reprobate. We always have good hopes. We pray for them. We, we, we reach out. Even if they've resisted the gospel again and again and again, we still don't give up on them and we still can pray for them and seek their salvation because we just cannot know in this life that someone's reprobate. But we can know in this life, within a certain measure of, of security, that another person's elect. Now you talked a little bit about how the gospel comes to someone. What does it mean if the gospel comes to someone in power as we see here and what role does the Holy Spirit play in our conversion? Well back then things were a little different than they are now. Uh, when the gospel came to a new area, sometimes the people uh, would receive the the outward visible baptism of the Spirit in that sense. That would be speaking in tongues and prophesying. There would just be an immediate effusion of what we call sign gifts. Um, so you're not going to immediately see the fruit of the Spirit. Well, how can you? You have to watch the way someone lives to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And we'll get to joy in a minute and some other things. But, but I think what happened was they, there were outward visible manifestations of the powerful moving of the Spirit, similar to Pentecost. So early on, you have some Pentecost moments that happen. The Holy Spirit comes, Cornelius' house, Acts 10. And I think back then, same thing, Thessalonians. The Holy Spirit would descend and the people would speak in tongues and prophesy and all that. Now, in our day and age, I think you need a little more time. The gospel comes, the people are joyful, they're energetic, they're excited. Well, that's good, but based on the rocky ground here that I just said, they were too. They were, uh, once received the word with joy. So joy is not a certain proof, but it is a good indication. If people receive the word and they're angry or bored, eh, they're probably not Christians. But if they receive it and they're happy and they're excited that they're forgiven and their tears coming down their eyes and all that, that's a good indication, but you still have to slow down and just wait. So in that case, the word power is a little bit different. It has to do with what we're gonna see later in the same chapter, the power of a transformed life. Mm. They start living differently. 
their marriage is different, their parenting is different, their conversation is different. They stop frequenting the pagan temple. They stop living a drunken, immoral lifestyle. Changes happen. And that only happens by the power of the Spirit. So the, the Spirit's power now, apart from the sign gifts, the Spirit's power now is different. It's more a transformation into a holy life. Now, verse 5 also mentions conviction or assurance. What's the difference between them and, and how are these evidences of genuine conversion as well? So I think there are two ways of understanding deep conviction. One is deep conviction of sin, and the other is deep conviction of the truths of Christianity. So I think both of those could be in view here. One is that you are utterly, completely convinced that if Christ had not died for you, you would deserve hell. You are a violator a, a, of the script of the of the. Uh, the law of God, you've broken God's laws, you have transgressed his commands, uh, you deserve to be condemned. You, you feel the sentence of death in yourself. Martin Luther said, um, it is not education or academics that makes a man a theologian. It's, it's dying and being condemned to hell that makes him a theologian. So he, he doesn't mean literally dying and being condemned to hell, but feeling yourself as mm -hmm. though you had died and been condemned to hell. Then you're like all of a sudden extremely interested in theology and you want to know, is there a way to escape? Mm -hmm. So the idea is the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction of sin. It basically like Nathan the prophet pointing his finger at David after Bathsheba saying, you are the man. I'm talking about you. Mm -hmm. So you're convicted of sin. And it's not just one time. It's the rest of your life. You realize the rest of your life. Romans 1 through 3, those chapters, especially the culminating part of Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You, you read those words and you're like, the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm talking about you. You are the sinner. You need a savior. Even if I've been a Christian 30, 40 years, I still feel that, the impact. So deep conviction. Or along with that, not different from that, but related, deep conviction that Christian theology is true. That Christ really is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross. He really did rise from the dead. I'm utterly convinced of these things. And all the details of Christian theology. Deep conviction. We hold the, the truths of the faith with a clear conscience and deeply, um, as it says of, of uh, deacons in First uh, Timothy three, where you have that sense of a deep holding on to Christian um, theology. Paul next addresses the way he and his team were role models to the Thessalonians and how they then became role models for others. Why was this such a big part of the success of the gospel in Thessalonica and around the world? Yeah, well, I think this is part of God's plan. You know, Jesus came, uh, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us or pitched his tent among us, tabernacled with us. And you see in, uh, in John 1, uh, the beginning of the Christian church, as John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Next day he says the same thing again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two disciples of John, John the Baptist's disciples, followed Jesus along the road, following where John pointed. And they want to know this man that John the Baptist said was the... Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus turned and said, what are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. So late in the day, they had a meal probably. doesn't say so, but they probably did. They sat down and ate with him and talked with him and just spent time with him. And you're like, you wonder why did the Apostle John put that 
in the Gospel of John when so many other things never made it in the Gospel. Because I believe that was the first time that John saw Jesus. And this is his Gospel, and he's going to tell his story. And it's all about fellowship. It's about spending intimate time with Jesus for all eternity, sitting at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fellowshipping with him for all eternity. And so fundamentally, the idea is what we call incarnational ministry, that Jesus came to live with us, God with us, and to immerse himself with us. Well, then the apostles and missionaries and evangelists go out and do the same. We follow the same pattern. You live with the people you're seeking to lead to Christ. You immerse yourself in their culture. You learn their language. You live with them. And then there's that imitation aspect. Then we see also in uh, first, um, uh, first. Timothy and also in First Thessalonians, we'll talk about it, but or, or Second Timothy, uh, a pattern of discipleship, pattern of sound doctrine, Second Timothy 1.13 and, and Philippians 3.17, uh, which is life learning and book learning. So the book learning is sound doctrine and the other is imitation, mm. role modeling. Um, and we get very strong role modeling here. We lived among you, you watched how we lived, and you started to imitate us. You started to imitate how we prayed. You started to imitate how we ate meals. You started to imitate how we talked to each other, how we would embrace each other with a Christian kiss of friendship, something like that, how we really like to be together. Mm. You started to imitate us. So that's just proof. The whole chapter is about proof that you Thessalonians really came to Christ when you heard the gospel. So that's all the things we're talking about. Now they are imitating the messengers and starting to live new kinds of lives. Andy, at FBC, we've been thinking a lot about trials and suffering mm -hmm. and affliction lately as we've made our way through mm -hmm. the book of Job. Mm -hmm. How do trials put hope on display, and what role does the joy of the Holy Spirit play mm -hmm. in this? Yeah, well, what happens in Acts 17 is they come and within, after just three weeks, the jealous um, Jews that were persecuting Paul started a riot in the city. And Paul and Silas snuck out at night and got out of there. Hmm. But the new little Thessalonian church was still there. And they had to deal with these hostile uh, uh, opposers of Christianity. And so severe suffering was immediately a part of the Thessalonians' Christian faith. And despite the fact that they immediately had the fire of persecution, they continued to persevere. Hmm. So they, they right away had their stony ground test, and they passed it. Persecution came, and they still believed in Jesus. Mm. And not only that, but they were filled with joy. As it says in Hebrews uh, 10, where it says, remember those earlier days when he first received the gospel, how you actually received persecution with joy, and even the confiscation of your property and incarceration, because you knew that you had a better possession and a lasting one in heaven. So these Thessalonians had the same thing. Convinced of the joy of eternity and of rewards, you suffered very well. Yeah. It's a powerful thing when we mm -hmm. see others suffer well, especially for the gospel. Mm -hmm. but why is that? Why is it easier to suffer when we see others go before us and suffer well? Well, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, um, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result of me being incarcerated, as a result of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Well, how's that? Well, they see Paul. He's not... He's not, I mean, he's, he's the one that sings in the Philippian jail. He's, he's the one that's rejoicing and trusting. And so people just lose their faith of persecution because they see a role model, their captain, their leader, flourishing spiritually, even while he's being beaten physically. Mm. And they're like, you know, I actually, I want to follow him. And he's a mentor, a role model to me. And so they became an example to everyone to not fear persecution. 
How does verse 8 show the effectiveness of joyful, hope-filled evangelism in the midst of suffering? Yeah, it says the Lord's message, my translation says, rang out from you. What do you have there in verse 8? Verse 8 uh, mm -hmm. says that has gone forth. Okay. Uh, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Yeah, it's just like the Romans as well. He says, everybody knows about your faith. Everybody knows about you. And so there's just reputation. It's like this church is exploding. And I think the fact that the gospel was prospering, mm. the fact that the gospel was succeeding led to further success. Mm. If it's just failing everywhere, nobody wants in on that. Yeah. But if if people all over are believing and coming and, and are, are thriving, that has a momentum to it. And so as they had received uh, the gospel and their lives were being transformed, they started evangelizing others who were so excited about Jesus. And people asked questions and many of them came to faith. And so yeah. it started to started to roll. Consistent even with what we studied not that long ago in First Peter, right? Mm -hmm. Giving a reason for the hope yeah. uh, that is in us when people see that and are thinking, man, how can you be that way in the midst of this kind of suffering and affliction. Yeah, and he says that it wasn't just Macedonia and Achaia, their faith in God has become known everywhere. So that that's all over the place, not mm -hmm. just in the Greek uh, you know, world, but also maybe Asia Minor and other places. And that's the commerce, that's the Roman roads you know, that united the Roman Empire. And so there's a lot of coming and going. And so people get on ships and they'd go to distant ports. They'd go to Alexandria, Egypt, or other places. They say, hey, by the way, I was just in Thessalonica. Bunch of people following a new religion up there. And then the message spread. That's amazing. Yeah. How is verse nine a clear description of repentance? And why is it, in, why is it essential for us to understand idolatry in our day? Yeah, so the key word on repentance here is turning. Um, you know, when you think about what is repentance, both in the Greek uh, and in the English, it's, it's thinking newly or thinking differently. You're turning away from um, a, a certain kind of thinking to a new thing, and the thinking leads to living. So thinking plus living, going from in one direction, and then as some have said, it's a U-turn. So you see the turning language here. They tell how you turned to God from idols. Mm. So that's repentance. You're turning away from, and you're turning to. And so there's a negative repulsion and a positive attraction. And so we are drawn to the glory of God and repulsed now by the ugliness of paganism. So they turned away from these wicked, evil idols. And the idols were disgusting. These are the Greek gods and goddesses and, and they're immoral beings like Hollywood movie stars living living just lavish, weird, immoral lives. Talking about the gods and goddesses as they were projected. Um, and then they would build little statues you know, the goddess of love, the god of war, the, you know, the king god, you know, uh, Zeus or Jupiter. They, you know, they would, they would make these shrines and, and all that. And then they would lead to corrupt worship practices, very immoral, drunken orgies and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And that was popular. It's very alluring, very, very sensual. It appealed to all of the senses of our bodies. A full stomach filled with meat sacrificed to idols, sexual pleasure as much as you want, drunkenness to be elevated through wine. I mean, what else could the carnal body want? Um, and that was at the temple. The Thessalonians stopped doing all that. They didn't go anymore. They were done with it. It's ugly and dark and evil. And they turned away from that. Instead, they turned to the one true and living God. And, and he is the living God. Yeah. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The others aren't alive. Yeah. They're impersonated by demons. 
that demons are God and goddess impersonators, but they didn't, they weren't real gods and goddesses, but there is a God, a living God, and they turn to him and he's holy and pure and they yearn to serve him. That is repentance, a radical change in their lives. It's a powerful juxtaposition, right? Of, of turning from these gods who are no gods or are, like you said, demons impersonating Mm-hmm. gods and goddesses mm-hmm. to the one true and living God. Yeah, it's awesome. How important is it to eagerly await mm-hmm. the second coming of Christ? Yeah, so we have all these demeanors in this chapter. We have joy. We mm-hmm. talked about that. They're, they're filled with joy. I mean, they were gloomy and depressed and angry and, and, and just pagan before Paul came to town. And now they're filled with joy. And, you know, some of them were Jews, so they weren't pagan. They were following Judaism. But, you know, uh, it was a bondage. It was a yoke. Peter said that neither we nor our fathers had been able to bear. So they're trying to earn their own salvation by keeping the law. And that wasn't working. It was just a gloomy, um, burdensome life. And then when the gospel came, they were set free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, he said. And so there's all this beauty. And so uh, they're filled with joy. They're filled with delight. But they're also filled with longing. We don't have the thing we're waiting for. It hasn't come yet. That's what hope is. It's, it's who hopes for what he already has but we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, Romans 8. And so they're waiting for his son from heaven. Uh, Jesus, the second coming of Christ, they're yearning. They say, we're waiting. The best things for us are yet to come. We're looking forward to a coming king and a coming kingdom and to eternity in that kingdom. And so they're they're always forward looking. They, they all know, even to their death, to their dying day, best things are yet to come. Hmm. What does verse 10 teach us about Jesus Christ and what final thoughts do you have for us today? Yeah, it says that Jesus in the second coming will rescue us from the coming wrath. We'll read about that in the book of Revelation. The coming wrath refers to the destruction of the world by fire as we uh, studied in Peter, 2 Peter uh, chapter uh, 3, but also even more significantly, personal destruction. Hmm. Uh, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal conscious torment, that is the wrath that comes. Jesus rescues us from that. So by faith in Christ, we will not suffer eternal wrath. So we're waiting for Jesus to come to establish his glorious kingdom. And we are also waiting, knowing that we will not be condemned for our sins, but we will be delivered. So this chapter, this little 10 verse chapter, talks very powerfully and clearly about what happens when the genuine gospel comes to a heart genuinely prepared by the Holy Spirit and is received with genuine faith. A radical transformation of life filled with joy, filled with holiness, filled with hard work and service and filled with hope. Well, this has been episode one in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode two, where we'll discuss 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.